Well, Merry Christmas, Arbor. Dude, it is wonderful to be with you. It is like the most wonderful time of the year, and we're here. This is amazing. You guys look fabulous. So festive. You look great. Wow, a tie and everything. I'm impressed. Well, my name's Jake, if I haven't got a chance to meet you, and uh, today what I want to do is I want to title this talk, uh, A Christmas Table. And so let me explain. Here's why I want to do that. Christmas, as we all know, is all about family. And uh, the family, I think that the table speaks to what a family could be or, or should be. Uh, the, the heart of the home, is it not? It centers around the family. And as a kid, um, I was blessed with my sisters to grow up in a home around the family. We had dinners together. So we ate together. We, you know, drank together. We talked about our day together. My dad he would tell stories, and then my mom would retell those stories, explaining what really happened. <laughs> Around the table, we did birthdays, we carved pumpkins, we carved the Christmas roast beast. Around the table, sometimes we'd laugh, sometimes we'd laugh till we couldn't breathe, sometimes we'd laugh till we couldn't cry. Sometimes we were around the table, and we just cried, right? Because we didn't want to eat our Brussels sprouts. Or dad was teaching us a lesson on manners, is what he called it. And in fact, at one point in time, and he told me never to tell this story, but it's Christmas and he's not here, so let's go with it. But at one point in time, my sister and I, we wouldn't sit up straight, and we were slouching down and shoveling the food into our, our mouth, our guzzles at the table. And so he went upstairs to his room. He got two belts, put them in two hands. I thought we were going to get beat by both hands, but that wasn't the case. What he did is he strapped us. He had us sit to the chair and then strapped our chest across, and we finished our dinner, and we cried, and we cried, and we cried. And so if you're thinking about any last-minute Christmas gift ideas for me, a couple, you know, therapy sessions would be really great, really, really great. But I loved growing up. I was honored. I was thrilled I could grow up around the table. We learned. We grew. Life happened around the table. Around the table, when you were there, you belonged. You were, you know, you're part of the family. You, you, you were home. And so many good things happen around the table. And it truly speaks, I think, to what a family should and could be in Christmas. Christmas is all about God coming to earth to offer us an invitation to be a part of what? His family. He is offering us a place at his glorious table, a chair. And so tonight, what I'd like to do is I'd like to share what is perhaps an unfamiliar story out of 2 Samuel chapter 9. But before I do that, what I want to do is I want to set up the passage. I want to give you a little background information. We need to talk about the cast of characters and the four principal players that are inside of this story. It'll make a lot more sense. And so let's start giving a little background on a guy named Saul. Saul, as some of you know, was the first king of Israel, the first king. Unfortunately, Saul was not a good king. He was not a good king. In fact, um, he forfeited his right of being king by disobeying God on a regular basis. Every turn he did. Eventually, God told Saul, which was probably pretty difficult for him to hear, that I'm going to be taking the kingdom that I gave you away. I'm going to tear it from your hands by your own doing. And consequently, I'm going to give it to another person, someone else, someone who is better. And that brings us to our second person, and that's David. David's the second player who at the time when this was happening was watching his father's sheep. He was a lowly shepherd. But God has, as some of you know, 
other plans, big plans for Goliath. Because first off, he started off with this big, big man named Goliath. And David went beast mode on the Philistine. And London bridges came falling down just like the 49ers will in five days. (laughs) And because of that, David secured a high-ranking position in Saul's army. And battle after battle and victory after victory, God's hand was on David, right? And his life, everyone loved him. Everyone loved him. The whole kingdom loved him except for Saul. Saul was so wracked with jealousy and insecurity that he started to devise ways in which he could take out David, in which he could murder David. You should should see some of your faces right now. You're like, I thought this was going to be a Christmas message. Where where are the wise men? Where, you know, where's Mary? Where's the manger? You know, there's no shepherds in 2 Samuel 9, and you are right. And if that's the case, then, you know, you may quietly slip out the back. I'm sure there's a church down the street that are giving you the good old-fashioned Luke chapter 2. But if you stay with me, I promise that you're going to see that this thing is Christmas through and through. Not actual Hallmark Christmas, but actual Christmas. What Christmas actually addresses, which is the human conditions and the problems that plague us. Friends, you are not going to get three points in a poem tonight. There won't be a whole lot of rum, pum, pum, pum. And the text does not taste like eggnog at first glance. But trust me, if you stick with me, I'm telling you, this has got Christmas all over it. Okay, are you with me? All right, so Saul was going after David. He wanted him dead. And to add another layer of complexity into this story, Saul had a son, and his son's name was Jonathan. Now, Jonathan is our third player, but what's crazy about this and ironic is Jonathan was best friends with David. Best friends. Saul had hoped that when he died, like so many parents, that, that, that Jonathan would follow in his footsteps as the next king of Israel. But God made it clear that David was to be the next king. And what's nuts is that Jonathan agreed with him. Jonathan thought, no, dude, it's clear. God's hand is on this man's life. I'm not the man. He's the man that should be king. And so one day, Jonathan, best friends with David, they got away. And they went out and they, they kind of had a conversation. And Jonathan said something. He said, make me a promise, David. Make me a promise that you will take care of my family. When you are king, that you will take care of my family. And David's like, well, you, you do that, right? You, you, you can take care of your family. And, 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 and it got into this moment, this kind of this emotional moment. And Jonathan's like, no, man, when I'm gone, like, like he knew somehow, when I'm gone and you're king, would you please be a good man and take care of my, fr- my family? Promise me that. And so David, as his best friend, promised him, and they cried. And it was a moment. But that is, according to Scripture, the last moment that we know that they had together as friends. Because at that point in time, from then on, David was on the run. Saul was trying to kill him, trying to hunt him down for 10 years, for a decade. David lived looking over his shoulder at what was coming. He lived in caves. And friends, side note on this. This is totally amazing. Those caves that David lived in for 10 years, when he was in there, he wrote the majority of the book of Psalms. 
the majority of the book of the Psalms. Some of the most precious things come out, come out of our darkest days because he is near to the brokenhearted. And so maybe today you're here and Christmas has not started off the way that you wanted it to in your family, in the drive over here, in the circumstances that you find yourself. And I would say to you, if that's you, take heart. Let it become a praise. Let it become something precious. Let it become something powerful. Take heart because the book of Psalms, we have it because David walked through the valley of the shadow of death. Eventually, Saul died in battle. Unfortunately, Jonathan died along with him and David was made king. 20 years later, after their death, brings us to this passage. 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. Here's what it says. One day, David asks, is there anyone in Saul's family still alive? So he's thinking about the promise that he made to Jonathan. Anyone to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake. He summoned a man named Ziba, who had been uh, one of Saul's servants. Are you Ziba? The king asked. Yes, sir, I am, Ziba replied. The king then asked him, is anyone still alive from Saul's family? If so, I want to show God's kindness to them. Ziba replied, one of Jonathan's sons is still alive. He is crippled in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. In Lodabar, Ziba told him. At the home of Machir, son of Amiel. So David sent for him and brought him from Machir's home. His name was Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. The absolute worst name to pronounce as a preacher. Mephibosheth. <laughs> and our fourth and final character. His name was Mephibosheth. He was one of Jonathan's sons and Saul's grandson. And when he had come to David... He bowed low to the ground in deep respect. David said, greetings, Phoebe. And Phoebe replied, I am your servant. Don't be afraid, David said, and I'll explain that in a second. I intend to show kindness to you because of my promise to your father, Jonathan. I will give you all the property that once belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will eat here with me at the king's table. So Mephibosheth bowed respectfully and exclaimed, who is your servant that you should show such kindness to a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Saul's servant Ziba and said, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and servants are, the, are to farm the land for him to produce food for your master's household. But Mephibosheth your master's grandson will eat here at my table. And from that time on, Mephibosheth ate regularly at David's table like one of the king's own sons. Like I said, this does not seem like a Christmas story at first glance, but this is exactly what we need to understand as we enter into this Christmas season with the proper frame of mind. Are you ready? Here it is. You and I are Mephibosheth. You and I are Mephibosheth. What do I mean? Five things. Write them down. Jot them down. First thing is this. One, life had not gone according to plan for Mephibosheth. Life 
had not gone according to plan. Like the Christmas story, like Mary and Joseph and their whole situation, our lives have not gone according to plan, have they? When you were young, maybe you charted out what you wanted your life to look like in the 30s or your 40s or your, you know, your 60s or even in your 70s. What did you want it to look like? You had big dreams as a kid. You wanted to be an astronaut. You wanted to be a pilot. Heck, you wanted to be president. And then one day you wake up and you ask the question, when did I stop and give up on my dreams? Life has not gone according to plan. Something has gone in the way. In marriage, you never thought the word divorce would come from your lips. That wasn't according to the plan. When it comes to your parents, maybe your parents passed away and you weren't on speaking terms. And then all of a sudden, you're not sure what to do with all that. It didn't go according to plan. Maybe things swerved out of control in college or with your kids or at your job. Things didn't go according to plan. And it's fine to plan. It's, you know, plans aren't bad, but just remember what Mike Tyson said. It's always good to throw in a casual Mike Tyson quote on Christmas Eve. <laughs> Mike Tyson said this, it's fine to plan. Everyone's got a plan. But then you get punched in the mouth. And how you adapt when life savagely punches you in the jaw. How do you adapt? What do you do? Friends, there's a question that I am asked on a regular basis by people that I don't know. It's an innocent question, but I hate it. It's the worst question that I, when it happens every time, I'm not sure how to respond. And it's this. You know, people ask you, what do you do for a living? Are you married? But the other question when they find out you have kids is how many kids do you have? I hate that question. Because if I say three, I leave my daughter out. Because we've had four kids, but we're only raising three right now. And that was not part of the plan. When I set out and got married and we had kids, that was not part of the plan. And I wasn't ready for that, and I still wrestle with that every day. No parent should ever have to bury their child. It's not a part of the plan. For Mephibosheth, his life did not go according to plan. At five years old, five years old, his dad died. Imagine that. Some of you can imagine that pretty easily because when you were young, your parents, one of your parents passed away. All of a sudden, Life got really cruel, real difficult. At five years old, his dad is gone. On the same day, his grandfather. The difference here is that his grandfather was the king. So that means that Mephibosheth grew up in the palace, friends. He had a room in the palace. He could go and probably went horseback riding. He probably had archery lessons and, and, and learned ancient hieroglyphics and had a British butler named Alfred, or at least that's how I imagine it. But that all changed overnight, right? The day that Saul died, there was a regime change. And the big succession plan was no longer happening. Jonathan would not be king. And his son, Mephibosheth, would not be king. There was a new sheriff in town, and that must have been awkward. That must have been difficult. In so many ways, this is like the White House in America. It's very interesting, so fascinating. I don't know if you've ever, if you knew this. During the actual inauguration ceremony, I don't know if you know, millions watch. 
But simultaneously, as this is going on, as the swearing in is happening, there is a shift. There is a change. In that moment, they're changing out the White House. True story. The first family wakes up in the White House, their White House, like they did for four to eight years. They get up in the morning, they have their French toast, right? That's what they have. They cook breakfast for them. Same day, everything. They can go down, they can go swimming. Need to wait a half an hour after they had their French toast, but they can go swimming. There's a pool in the White House, right? Downstairs, there's a bowling alley. They can go to the, gold, the garden, the rose garden, and they can smell the roses. Heck, they could pick the roses. It's their rose garden. But the moment they load up into the, into the car and they, to, to go head over to the inauguration ceremony, people flood into the White House. And what do they do? They start folding up their clothes. They start taking down their artwork. They take out their furniture. They start painting the rooms. What are they doing? They are flipping the White House. They are unloading. There were cars idling outside the White House, and they come in, and they're bringing in new furniture, new clothes, new artwork for the new first family. And so when they leave the inauguration ceremony on Marine One helicopter, they fly over the White House. And at that point in time, tradition says they wave to the White House. That's it. The White House is no longer their home. They cannot come back the next day and knock on the door and say, I'm here. It's not their house. It's don't call, don't write. If we find any of your crap, we'll mail it to you. It's jarring. Think about that. You wake up, that's your home, and then it's gone. Mephibosheth woke up on the fifth year of his life, and the palace was his home. That was his room. That is where he did archery lessons. That's his British butler named Alfred, right? And then news came that the king is dead. And all of a sudden, everything changed. And this little guy, he had no dad. He had no home. We have no idea about his mom. She's not mentioned in scripture. But life for him did not go according to plan. He was supposed to be king eventually. The second way in which we are like Mephibosheth is that people he trusted let him down. People he trusted let him down. Now I'm pretty sure that there have been people in your life who have let you down. People who promised to be there. People who should have been there, but they weren't. We trusted that till death do us part meant that they would be faithful. We trusted that our parents would stay together. We trusted that this person that we trusted would not hurt us when we were 11 years old. We all trusted someone who let us down. And Mephibosheth, who no longer had a dad, had one person, one friendly face to look at. Who was that? It was a nurse. It was his nanny. Look at 2 Samuel Chapter 4. Why is everybody whispering? What did I say that was funny? The kid said it was the butler. Oh. He had two friendly faces. The butler's gone. Butler's gone. Alfred left quick. That's funny. You should write this, whoever that is. 2 Samuel chapter 4. Here's what it says. Saul's son, Jonathan, had a, um, had a son named Mephibosheth who was crippled as a child. Now, how did that happen? You're wondering. Here's how. 
He was five years old when the report came from Jezreel that Saul and Jonathan had been killed in battle. When his child's nurse, when the child's nurse heard this, heard the news, she picked him up and fled. But as she hurried away, she dropped him and he became crippled. You see, there was a panic and a full-fledged evacuation in the palace staff. They were thinking that the king has been killed and we have got to get out of here because the new regime is coming in. They're going to round us up and they're going to do the same thing. And so his nurse, who was trying to help one of two loving faces right, dropped him on the way out, probably damaging his spine so that he couldn't walk. Now, I don't believe that she did it intentionally, but nonetheless, Mephibosheth was paralyzed in her care. The nurse let him down. And on the other side of the coin, friends, we have all trusted people who have let us down, but we have all let down people who have trusted us. And that's on me, right? Those are things that I have done. There are things that I have done to hurt people. There are ways in which I have lived out my witness that have hurt the name of Jesus. We have all fallen. We have all let people fall. Romans 3 says, for all have sinned and fallen. There it is. Fallen short of the glory of God. And that explains it. That explains why we've been hurt. That explains why we've hurt other people because we've all fallen. The third way in which we are like Mephibosheth is this. He was in danger and had no way to run. He was in danger and had no way to run. While David was expanding the kingdom, Mephibosheth was living in Lodabar, which means no pasture, meaning that there is no food for even animals to graze. And then one day, David suddenly remembers that he has this this promise that he made to Jonathan. And so he does a little research and discovers that Jonathan had a son. And so he invites then David, or David invites Mephibosheth to come over and to see him. And friends, I guarantee this. Everybody assumes, it's assumed, when David's inviting him over, that Game of Thrones is about to go down. Somebody is going to lose a head. Because back then, it was all about lineage, all about bloodline. And everyone's thinking, including Mephibosheth, that he is about ready to be executed. And friends, that is why David says what? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Now, where have I heard that phrase before? Oh, I I remember. Christmas morning in a little town called Bethlehem. See, look, you're going to get your Luke 2 after all. You're going to go home happy. Luke 2 says this. It says, Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, talking about the shepherds, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They, like Mephibosheth, were terrified. But the angel reassured them, Don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, The Lord has been born today in Bethlehem, in the city of who? David. You guys, that's crazy. Isn't it amazing how this story echoes the greatest story ever told? And it leads us to our next point, and that's this. The fourth way in which we're like Mephibosheth is there was a good king who wanted to show him kindness. 
There was a good king who wanted to show him kindness. David didn't have to. There was no reason to, but he did. We too, friends, are in danger. For the wages of sin is death. We have fallen. Friends, we are all moving closer and closer to the day of our death. Merry Christmas. (laughs) You have never stopped from the moment that you were born nearing that pine box. And you might say to yourself, no, I use essential oils. (laughs) And I would say to you, nope. You are still going to die. You're just going to smell better than the rest of us. You're like, well, no, wait. I'm not going to die because I eat kale. (laughs) You're going to die with a bad taste in your mouth. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) We all know the truth, and that is that everybody eventually kicks the bucket. And when we do, our soul is going to stand before God. This is important. You are not a body. You have a body. You are a soul. And when your soul leaves your body, your soul will stand before God. It's called a judgment. And according to Jesus, it's heaven or hell. It's eternity with God or eternity without God. And you might ask, why should I listen to Jesus? There are a lot of people. There are a lot of prophets, gurus, people who've written books on the afterlife. Why should I listen to Jesus? Here's why. As simple as I can say it. If a man can predict his own death and resurrection and then pull it off, I'm going to go with what he said. Think about that. If a man can predict his own death and resurrection and then actually pull it off, I'm going to go with, he, with what he said. It's Jesus. It's the resurrection. And David desired Mephibosheth to do, show him kindness because of Jonathan. And hear this. The father wants to show us kindness because of Jesus. That's Christmas. Christmas is a good king who wants to show you kindness. Christmas is God stepping out of heaven into a manger for our benefit. Christmas is a rescue mission. Christmas is mercy. Christmas is messy. Christmas is miraculous. It's a king who is so kind that he came to us. That's Christmas. That is Christmas. And friends, there was a point when David called Mephibosheth forward. What did Mephibosheth do? He knelt down, right? He probably fell down because of his lame legs. And he said, I am a dog. Why would you call me here to show me kindness? And David says, don't worry. I'm not going to execute you. Don't be afraid. I'm here to show you kindness. Get up. Get up. And they probably helped him up. And it leads us to our final point. And that is this. Is that he was given a seat at the king's table. He was given a seat at the king's table. David said, I don't want to execute you. I want to bless you. I don't want to hurt you. I knew your father. He was a good man. And I made him a promise. And so, you know what? You don't have to run anymore. You don't have to hide and load a bar. I want you to come here. I want you to live in the palace. You know what? You could have your own room back. I don't know. Maybe Alfred's around here. We could find him. He, could, he can be here as well. 
but you can move back in, maybe even into your own space. And I decree in front of the entire kingdom that this right here is your seat. This is Mephibosheth's seat. Let's put his name on it. He's going to sit next to me and next to my sons and next to my daughters. This is his seat. And friends, can you imagine the first meal that he actually had? When he sat down, I am sure when he sat down, it was difficult because of his legs. Because they had to help him there. And they put him inside of the seat. And then they took a napkin and they put it on his lap. And they pushed him in. And he sat down and he realized, this is crazy. I'm not alone. I've been in Lodabar for a long, long time. There are people here that are sitting at the table and they want me here. They care about me. There is a good king and he is smiling at me. And we are laughing and we are telling stories. I can ask him, David, tell me again how it went down with Goliath. I mean, I was in Lodabar. And now I'm in Jerusalem, in the capital city, and there is meat, and there is bread, and there is milk, and not an ounce of kale on the table. It's amazing. There are stories to be told. There's inside jokes that are having. They are laughing. They are crying. It's all amazing, and it's happening at the table. And friends, do you want to know the coolest part of the whole entire thing? I don't know if this happened on the first day, but I am sure at some point in time, Mephibosheth realized he knew that he had been an outcast since he was five years old because of his lame legs. But he realized that when he sat at the table, nobody could see him. He was just like everyone else, just like the king's sons and the king's daughters. Catch this, friends. His condition was hidden by his position at the table. His condition was hidden by his position at the table. And I'm telling you, I came here today to tell someone here that your history does not have to determine your destiny. Today could be your last day in Lodabar. Your last day. God wants to invite you to the table to be a part of his family, to give you hope and passion and a future and the light of Christ burning in your eyes. And Christmas simply shows us the extreme lengths that God will go to to make us a part of his family. And so what did it take? Here's what it took. Look at the screens. To get us to the Christmas table, it took God's son willing to come and to be born in a stable. That's Christmas. It's Jesus. That's Christmas. That's that's. Away in a manger. Jesus. That's silent night. That's Jesus. That's joy to the world. Jesus. Jesus is offering us a place at the table, friends. He said it himself. Look at this. Luke 22. Jesus said, As surely as my Father has given me my kingdom, so I give you the right to eat and drink at my table. So how do we get there? It's very simple. Are you ready? Like Mephibosheth, we simply need to sit down. We need to accept his offer. Friends, that requires humility. Mephibosheth probably thought, I didn't do anything to deserve this. And you know what the truth is? 
He didn't. He didn't do anything to deserve this. You have not done anything to deserve to be in God's kingdom. Nobody in God's kingdom in heaven is going to be there because they made it on their own. We're all going to be there because of Jesus. And that's a feast we don't want to miss out on. Would you do me a favor? Would you close your eyes? I want to invite the band to come on up. And I want to close us out with a couple questions. Number one is this. Maybe you're here and you have never met the good king. Right? You have a lot of questions when it comes about him. Like, can I trust him? Does he even exist? I will tell you this. He is good. He is so good. He not only exists, but he can be trusted. He went to extreme lengths to make you a part of the family. And so on Christmas Day, it was a perfect day in which to accept him and to accept the invitation. He says, simply sit down. Maybe you're here and you have stepped away from the table. There was a period of time when you sat here and you've been thinking about coming back. Parts of you loved being part of the family, but then you got frustrated. And I'll tell you this, there's no perfect family, especially the siblings of God, especially the siblings of the good king. But you've been on the outside looking in, and it's cold. It's cold outside, and the invitation is always open. It's always been open. And maybe you're thinking, I want to come back to the table. I want to sit with my, my good king. I want him to smile at me. And it doesn't matter what you've done. I promise you, it does not matter what you've done. Simply sit down and, and accept the invitation. Because what the good king wants to tell you is this, is he wants to tell you, welcome home. Welcome home. If you want to come and sit at the table today, today is a great day to do so. If that's you, then would you truly accept this prayer in your heart? Lord, we come to you. We have been far away. We don't deserve to sit in your family. We don't deserve to be a part of it, but we desire to. You're so good. I don't want to spend eternity looking over our shoulders or eternity wondering what could have been. I desire to come home. And so, Lord, would you accept me? Help me to sit down. I can't even sit down on my own. My legs are broken. My life is broken. Carry me to the table, Lord. We trust in you. We thank you for Christmas. We thank you for what you've given us here. And we ask that you would be with us in this season. In your name. Amen. Friends, if you did or you want to make a decision for Christ today for the first time, you want to get to know the good king, he's offering you a place at the table. Simply write on your connection card, I want to make a decision today to follow Jesus. The reason we do this is we want to put more leaves in the table. What's really funny is that the good king said, go out and find those who need a place at the table, and we all need a place at the table. And so if you want to be a part of that, I, I encourage you to check that box. Maybe you want to renew your faith in Jesus. That's the second box to check. 
that you left the table. The table is always open. Your place setting still has your name on it. Simply have to come back to the seat. We're going to sing a song. And what's interesting is we came across a song as we were preparing for this. It is not your typical Christmas song. But what would be good is to listen to the words and then join in when you can. But it talks about the invitation that we have at the table. Would you stand with me?